Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In podcast. This is now episode 18, in which we will discuss chapter 16 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled What Happened About the Statues. And this chapter is coming on the heels of what Lewis himself described as perhaps the most wonderful thing that happened to the children in Narnia uh, at the end of the previous chapter, where Aslan romps with Lucy and Susan in the fields, having just resurrected from the dead, breaking the power of the deep magic with an even deeper magic from before the dawn of time, cracking the stone table in two, and effectively declaring his final war. Uh, the ultimate victory over the White Witch and her forces of evil. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that she is still out running amok. At the beginning of that chapter, she and all of her evil forces had fled the hill to go finish off the rest of them, leaving Aslan dead on the stone table and off to go polish off the rest of her victory. And so when Aslan resurrects from the dead, breaks the stone table and roars, his mighty roar, romping with Susan and Lucy, there is still great darkness and evil out there. And we're going to see a a portion of it in chapter 16, which tells us something about the way in which the good news of Christ's resurrection, his kingship, uh, the way in which it is uh, appearing for us in our day and age, that we can read the scripture and we can see glorious passages of Christ's resurrection the Great Commission, all authority on in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. That Christ holds all authority over all things. That he is the one true king. He is God. And he is who he says he is. And yet we look around us and we see all, all sorts of evil uh, still running amok, still making its way through every corner of our planet. And we can often be tempted to see a disconnect that how exactly is it that he's a good God? How exactly is it that he's the true king over a good and holy kingdom? And yet we're still aborting babies and we're still uh, racked with poverty and we're still uh, gossiping to one another and we're still lying and betraying one another. How is it that evil is still occurring when he is this good God that has all authority? And here in Lewis's a story that we see an indication of how that might be where uh, Aslan's victory is sure. He has broken the stone table. He has resurrected from the dead. Aslan is the king. And yet there is work to be done. There is a job to do. And that is conquering evil for good. That is, as we'll see, the title of this chapter is what happened about the statues. Um, Aslan is about to make way to the witch's courtyard to liberate all of those who had gone under her spell. And that liberation, I, I think, is a good indication of the work that God is doing, that Aslan is doing, through his people. In the story, that is work that Aslan will do. It is his breath that will resurrect and revitalize and liberate all of the stone statues in the courtyard. Uh, but it's through his army that he will conquer his ultimate victory, that he has particular jobs for each of the creatures to do. Um, It's like in the previous chapter where Father Christmas gives particular gifts to particular individuals, that Lewis knows that the, the outworking of the gospel is one that includes spiritual gifts and particular realities in the body of Christ, that the church matters, 
Now, uh, the body without the head is useless. <laughs> that um, the believers without Christ are there nothing apart from Him. We can do nothing. Yet it has uh, it has pleased God in His goodwill to work out His salvation of the cosmos, His redemptive plan through the workings of individuals in the church. And we'll see that here as well, uh, where Aslan is the author of the resurrecting power, and yet he is resurrecting an army of animals and dryads and giants and Susan and Lucy, Edmund and Peter, each of whom will have a particular role to play in the final drama. So at the beginning of chapter 16, what happened about the statues? Uh, Lucy cries out, what an extraordinary place, all those stone animals and people too. It's like a museum. And when they have set foot in the courtyard, remember they haven't seen it yet. Edmund has seen it. And the reader, by extension, has seen it. Uh, this great, horrifying uh, castle that the White Witch has erected. All of the stone statues uh, from people who have crossed her, um, littered about in the courtyard. But they hadn't seen it. And it's interesting that she uses the word a museum because in just a few paragraphs, we'll see that museum transform into a zoo. As Lewis's own words, he'll say that uh, everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. And I think that dynamic is a really fitting one, of course, for children who are reading this story who might easily uh, imagine both of those settings, um, the kind of cold, quiet, stilted air of a museum versus the wild and frenzied and uh, living reality of a zoo, um, the noises and the life and uh, so on. Uh, but also because it's a fitting image to describe uh, salvation itself, the movement from death to life. These creatures were stagnant and paralyzed and completely stuck in their stone uh, reality that the white witch had cursed them with. They were utterly helpless. It's like in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses, completely consumed by the curse of sin and evil and death. And these stone statues are literally frozen in time. And they're unable to breathe or move or anything until the spirit of God descends upon them. And so the, the quiet, dead air of a museum, as a contrast to the electric and frenzied atmosphere of a zoo, I think is a fitting one, an appropriate one to describe the life that uh, this, the Holy Spirit brings us. The, the life of the gospel is one of jubilee and celebration and song and laughter and joy. And, and this transition is one that we need to, to mark in this chapter. But it's also a, an interesting image as well, because it reminds what we'll see later, uh, if you have not read The Magician's Nephew yet, that um, that previous, that prelude story, the prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that when Diggory and Polly happen upon Charn, uh, where Jadis is from, and they happen upon her palace and her courtyard there, it too is littered with all sorts of uh, statues of of men and women who are frozen in time. Lewis calls them wonderful waxworks, that they look so lifelike that Diggory and Polly think they're real. 
but as they move through the corridors of the courtyard, they see that they are just simply frozen. And so this is a this is a feature of the White Witch's power that carries over from Charn, uh, as well as her widespread destructive power uh, in the line of the Witch in the Wardrobe. That is this uh, century long curse of winter with no Christmas. In the Magician's Nephew, we discover that it is the deplorable word that she uttered that brought devastation and destruction to all of Charn. And we'll see that when we get to uh, our study of the Magician's Nephew later on. So to see all of that uh, in this parallel way is quite uh, quite an appropriate description of uh, the curse and the spell of evil. But uh, it's not long until Susan says, hush, Aslan's doing something. He was indeed, Lewis says. And he goes on to describe how Lewis bounds from statue to statue and breathes on them the breath of life, um, which Devin Brown has remarked on how this might be a parallel to another scene in The Magician's Nephew, where Aslan is singing Narnia into existence. Uh, this is a beautiful um, portrait. And I think it's something that Tolkien uses as well about how uh, Middle-earth was sung into existence. This is a beautiful portrayal of the creation account. Um, but as Aslan is singing Narnia into existence, Uncle Andrew uh, starts prattling on and Frank, the cab driver from London that got swept up into this other world, hushes him and says, to be quiet, this is not a time for talking. Aslan is doing something. Um, and we need to spend some time describing what Aslan is doing. Th- this scene is a, such a beautiful one for its biblical resonance and power that Aslan moving around this courtyard, breathing on these stone statues and his breath causing the statue to almost literally melt away. The description Lewis gives is that of uh, the image of someone who has set fire to a piece of newspaper. He says, you might remember having seen somebody lit light a piece of newspaper on fire. He says, at first, nothing really happens. And then you slowly see Uh, the paper consumed with the fire as it spreads in all these different streaks across. He said, that's what was happening with these stone statues, that streaks of gold started veining their way and started streaking their way across the entire creature until he was completely free and liberated from the stone. Um, And and I should really read a portion of it. It's it's just so beautiful. Here's Lewis's description of Aslan. Uh, awakening and liberating the stone statues. Everywhere, the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing round him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now a blaze of colors. Glossy chestnut sides of centaurs, indigo horns of unicorns, dazzling plumage of birds, ready brown of foxes, dogs and satyrs, yellow stockings and crimson hoods of dwarves, and the birch girls in silver, and the beach girls in fresh transparent green, and the larch girls in green so bright that it was almost yellow. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brayings, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, songs, and laughter. And what, just a, I, it's such an inviting description that you want to be there to experience this, 
uh, this joyous sound of all of these animals slowly coming back to life. It's, it's a similar image to uh, when the winter was breaking and spring was slowly creeping its way into the world. Um, in his book, Inside Narnia, Devin Brown talks about that, how the awakening of Narnia in springtime is similar to the awakening of all these creatures from their sterile uh, existence as stone. But what a beautiful sentiment on God's redemptive plan. Everywhere, the statues were coming to life. The holy breath of God that awakens dead souls from their sin is a beautiful and glorious portrait. And it is an unstoppable event. Everywhere, the stone statues are coming to life. Uh, It makes me think of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, about how the mirth and the joy and the revelry of Christ is its most infectious and most attractive quality, that it is it is a movement from um, death to life, from sleeping to waking. And it reminds us of the imagery that is used in Genesis with God's formation of Adam in Eden. You'll remember when God in Genesis 1 and 2 creates man, he creates this stone, I'm sorry, this dirt figure. Uh, he creates the likeness of a man out of dirt and soil. And then he breathes into that creature, that statue, uh, the breath of life. And it's it's no accident. The Greek word for wind and for breath and for spirit is all the same word, pneuma in Greek. It means wind, breath, and spirit. And it's used in that way throughout the New Testament. When we talk about the sound of a mighty rushing wind that is heard when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. Um, we think of what the passage I just mentioned in Genesis, where God breathes the breath of life into Adam. And then in a parallel, um, when he's resurrected and he visits the disciples, he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so this portrait of Aslan breathing on these stone statues, giving them the breath of life that awakens them from the dead, I think is a picture of regeneration. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In Romans 8, Paul talks about this. He says in Romans 8, 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Think of the stone statues. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so he is, Aslan's assembling this army of animals and creatures who will participate with him in the great and final victory. Aslan doesn't go out to face the white witch by himself. He's already done that in in the most um, unlikely of tactics where he faces the white witch and dies allows himself to be killed now he will face her with an army that he has raised from the dead and this is a picture of the church regenerated by the holy spirit and participating with aslan co-heirs with christ in the great and final victory at the end of this uh, image it's such an image of christian revelry as well think of the courtyard, the empty courtyard of the White Witch's castle, filled with all of the color and the sound and the joyful 
ringing celebration that is taking place there. Now, this is the this is the medieval merriment and jubilee that was lacking um, all those chapters ago when uh, we first heard about all these stone statues. But Susan, at the end of it, says, uh, oh, I, I wonder, I mean, is it safe? And we've heard that question from her before to the beavers. Is Aslan safe? And the answer is no, he's not safe. Aslan is not safe, but he is good. And so Susan looks around at all of these creatures as they're listed. We have giants and unicorns and centaurs and foxes and satyrs and dwarves. And she says, is it safe? And she hasn't quite learned yet that Narnia is a wild land. The cosmos that God has created is a wild realm. It is not safe. Chesterton says that the more he came to understand Christianity, the more he saw it as a ruled order that allowed good things to run wild. It was a ruled order. It, it, was a, it had a perimeter. There was a guideline set by a loving father wherein good things could run wild. And that's what God has created, a, a place in which good things can run wild. And Susan is still asking, yeah, but is it safe? No, it's not safe. And we aren't meant to be safe. We are meant to be dangerous. We are meant to be wild creatures with our sworn allegiance to the King of all kings, to Jesus himself. And there are some other possibilities with um, this whole scene before we move on. One is that this scene could be a, a purgatorial image. If, if you're led to believe in purgatory, here, here are creatures who are part of Aslan's army who are uh, temporarily paralyzed until the appointed time for them to be released and liberated. I think that's an unlikely um, explanation of this, partly because I, I'm not entirely convinced of Lewis's own thoughts on purgatory. He's written on it before, but, but also um, these aren't creatures who were traitors or uh, had some sort of uh, sinfulness to their characterization. These were characters who were uh, captured by the white witch. So there, I think there's a second uh, uh, piece of the Christian tradition that could be used to explain this. And that is Christ's harrowing of hell. Uh, and um, Ephesians 4 talks about this. I, I, in First Peter, it mentions it how, um, I think in the gospel accounts, it says too, that just as uh, Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so will the son of man be three days in the heart of the earth. Um, in the Christian tradition, there's it's in the Apostles' Creed as well that we believe that he descended into Hades uh, to set the captives free. That um, in in Christian history, the explanation here is that when Jesus died, he descended into Hades, into the realm of the dead, not into the hell of eternal punishment, the lake of fire, not not the place of the damned, but he just descends into Hades, the realm of the dead to set the captives free, those who had, um, those who were the elect of God, those who were believers, those who were saints, who um, had died prior to the atonement of their sins in Christ on the cross and were kept in waiting in the realm of the dead, in the realm of the dead for the gospel to be declared. When Jesus descends into Hades, he declares the good news uh, that it is finished and he sets the captives free. This is called the harrowing of hell where he liberates those saints from their slumber, from the dead, to be with him in heaven. 
in the presence of God. That's a possibility for this image as well, but it certainly links uh, well into the purposes of the Holy Spirit of God in awakening and bringing to life those who are dead in their trespasses, those who are dead in their sin. Um, Aslan awakens everyone. He awakens the giant rumble buffin who ultimately um, breaks everybody out of the courtyard, breaks that, that outer barrier down so that they can uh, flood their way down to the fords of Baruna, where the, the final battle is taking place. We uh, catch up with Peter and Edmund there as they are swinging swords and fighting. And we see this great intrusion of joy as uh, all of the creatures recently liberated by Aslan descend on, on the battleground. I'm not entirely sure why Lewis does not dramatize the liberation of Tumnus. Because when Edmund was there, we saw Mr. Tumnus uh, frozen. He's, we saw him as a stone statue with a sad look on his face. It was a very poignant moment uh, that we saw with Edmund's. Uh, encounter of the White Witch's castle. And, and Tumnus is the first Narnian we meet. Uh, he's a major character, major player in this plot. And when we get to um, when we get to the scene where Lucy finds Tumnus, Lewis curiously doesn't dramatize it. We have Lucy's declaration, Aslan, Aslan, I found Mr. Tumnus. Oh, do come quick. And then the very next sentence, Lewis says, a moment later, Lucy and the little fawn were holding each other by both hands and dancing round and round for joy, which is a beautiful statement. But uh, of all the moments where Lewis could really dramatize and show uh, this grand reunion with Aslan breathing on the statue of Tumnus, uh, it might have been a missed opportunity there. But finally, Lewis says, but at last the ransacking of the witch's fortress was ended. The whole castle stood empty with every door and window open and the light and the sweet spring air flooding into all the dark and evil places which needed them so badly. And this just puts a cap at the end of this great scene uh, where that the Latin phrase post tenebris lux after darkness light is most appropriate here where Lewis says the whole castle stood empty with every door and window open and the light and the sweet spring air flooding into all the dark and evil places which needed them so badly. I love that he calls it the ransacking of the witch's fortress. That's what our mission is. Onward Christian soldiers marching us to war. This is what we're doing. We are ransacking the witch's fortress. Indy Wilson calls it polluting the shadows, bringing light into every dark crevice of this fallen world uh, for the gospel. But Rumble Buffin, the giant, uh, bashes the wall down. They descend on the field. They meet up with Peter and Edmund. Um, but on their way there, the, and the, the last scene I'll discuss in this episode, which is just so perfect, is that Aslan takes a moment to give marching orders and direct commands to each of the creatures as they go to join the war. And I, I want to read this moment because it's so uh, simple and subtle, but it's really compelling. Aslan says this, And now those who can't keep up, that is children, dwarves, and small animals, must ride on the backs of those who can, that is lions, centaurs, unicorns, horses, giants, and eagles. Those who are good with their noses must come in front with us lions to smell out where the battle is. Look lively and sort yourselves. So at first, this just seems like Aslan taking command, which he has every right to do. He's the king. And 
uh, as I said earlier, dispensing um, and delegating particular responsibilities to this body of believers, this, this army of saints, these creatures, these Narnians who have been liberated. And there's a great sermon by John Piper called I Act the Miracle, uh, where he talks about, um, and he gives all this biblical foundation for how we are invited to participate with God in his great miraculous power. And there are stories throughout the Bible where we see men and women who are invited into this, but Piper's statement is that God is the author of the miraculous. God is the one who is the miracle worker, but he in his mercy and in his goodness has allowed us to participate in acting that out in um, the expression of the miracle or the working of the miracle that we are invited into that. And I think here we get that same sort of indication where all of these Narnians are invited to participate with Aslan in his great victory. Um, in that sermon, Piper quotes the great hymn from Charles Wesley, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues, and particularly the line where he says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin, where he says, we, with God's empowerment, uh, get to break the power of canceled sin. That sin is canceled. Aslan has atoned for sin. He has conquered everything, but that we get to participate with him in the breaking of its power over time as God's kingdom advances and the gospel flourishes. But the really important note here is what follows Aslan's command. Aslan says, uh, those who are good with their noses must come in front with us lions to smell out where the battle is. Now watch what happens next. And with a great deal of bustle and cheering, Christian revelry, they did. The most pleased of the lot was the other lion who kept running about everywhere, pretending to be very busy, but really in order to say to everyone he met, did you hear what he said? Us lions. That means him and me. Us lions. That's what I like about Aslan. No side. No standoffishness. Us lions. That meant him and me. And this is just, as I said before, this is such a compelling description from Lewis of the gratitude and the amazement and the joy we ought to have at the gospel of Christ, that Aslan likens himself to the other lion when he says, us lions. He brings the other lion into a likeness with himself, which has so many different outworkings in um, in the gospel. This is so true biblically. Uh, I think of Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4.15. Um, I'll start with verse 14, where the writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Aslan is like the other lion. Jesus is like us. Uh, He put on flesh and dwelt among us, that he is Christ incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, He became a man, that he might know what it's like, and he might die in our place. And Aslan here says, us lions, him and me. And the other lion here is the most pleased of the lot. And he bandies it. He just bounds around to all the other creatures talking about how he is like Aslan and Aslan is like him. 
And this reminds me of Romans 8 and, and other passages where Jesus is described as our elder brother, Christ, our brother. He is our co-heir. We are invited into this great relationship where, uh, and, and just think of in the, in the beginning, we are made in his in, image. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. May that never, ever grow dull or trite to us. Us, lions, the lion of the tribe of Judah, King Jesus, became a man. And the incarnation is eternal. He was resurrected into a physical body. And he sits at God's right hand in a physical body, his resurrected body. And we will join him in our resurrected bodies. And we will commune with him like that forever. And of course, the other lion is... um, is not taking it all that well. He's running around pretending to be busy, but just trying to tell everybody that, hey, us lions, Aslan, that means him and me both. And Lewis says, at least he went on saying this till Aslan had loaded him up with three dwarves, one dryad, two rabbits, and a hedgehog. That steadied him a bit. And I'd say, yeah, the same is true for us. We are like Christ. We, we have been crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is a beautiful exchange and a beautiful relationship with Jesus who put on flesh and dwelt among us, that we are like him in that way. Us lions. Finally, we end the chapter with uh, the great battle scene. We'll describe it some more in the next chapter, chapter 17, the final chapter, the hunting of the white stag, where we'll see the end of the battle. But it's a great description I should end with, where um, uh, Peter and Edmund are fighting with all the rest. Uh, We'll find out in the next chapter that Edmund uh, has been wounded in his uh, his successful move to destroy the white witch's wand. So Peter is fighting the white witch. His sword and her stone knife are uh, going back and forth. And in the final paragraph, Aslan says, Off my back, children. And they both tumbled off. Then with a roar that shook all Narnia, from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. Lucy saw her face lifted towards him for one second, with an expression of terror and amazement. Now remember, she thought he was dead. She killed him. And now she turns and sees Aslan flinging himself upon her. Uh, This is such an appropriate and um, encouraging description to end the chapter on, where Aslan himself uh, will take the final vindicating blow against the White Witch, and her look is one of terror and amazement as she faces her doom at the hands of Aslan. So uh, that ends chapter 16. Uh, In the next episode, we will look at the 17th and final chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled The Hunting of the White Stag. Thank you for listening.